What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Not Rocket Science, the podcast talking about the intersectional relationship between business, technology, and culture. How you guys doing? This is Sean, your host. Hope you guys are doing well on this, well, for me right now, this Sunday, September 29th, almost in October. Almost in October, I'm seeing the uh, Halloween candy at all the drugstores now. Drugstores? Pharmacies? What do we call these things? They're like not just drugstores. They're like what are Walgreens called? I don't even know because there's so much more than just a pharmacy. I feel like that's limiting them, you know, giving them the uh, short end of the stick compared to their offering. But anyway... Halloween starting to creep up, little scary, little scary, but uh, no pun intended. But it's cool, you know. Got to go with the changing of the seasons. So here we are, end of September. Um, things are going well here. The weather's still actually pretty warm, which I'm liking. Uh, I know it's all gonna go away soon, so I'm just embracing these last days of t-shirt weather before the crap rolls in and I am miserable for eight months again wearing jackets all day. So, not to rant about the weather or pharmacy stores for 20 minutes or so, but, you know, I gotta ease into this. It's about easing in, feeling natural. I don't wanna get in here and just talk business. Flame. That's why I don't listen to any other business podcasts anymore. They're all boring. Anyway, that being said, wanted to get to what we chatting about today. I'm doing this kind of like thought of the day kick, and I'm kind of liking it the past few episodes. It's good, you know, it structures the show, boils it down to one thing, keeps it not too long, so I'm kind of liking this format. Um, but today, we're not talking about anything that's particularly just businessy, but it definitely applies to business, applies to life choices. Um, but I'm gonna look. I'm gonna look at it through a somewhat business lens. Um, I l- heard this interview with this kid recently, even though it was kind of an older interview. His name's Young Keo. He is a music producer, and he is the fella. He is the young. Fe- he's only 19, by the way, which is crazy. But he is the young fella who created the beat for what is now known as the. Tune the Diddy Old Town Road, probably the biggest song in the past three to four years from a cultural significance standpoint. Dominated the internet, you know, got big on TikTok, I believe. Um, the original music video had Red Dead Redemption, which is the most popular video games in the past few years. You know, everyone knows that song. Dominates the charts. 
I mean, it just stopped being the number one song, I think, like maybe last month or two. And it's been out for a hot minute now. So that being said, Young Keofella, 19 years old, made the beat. And he is from Netherlands, too. So this is a kid from the Netherlands making a beat in his bedroom, essentially. Um, He sampled, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but the Old Town Road sample. It's actually a Nine Inch Nails song, which is kind of crazy that now Nine Inch Nails is uh, getting sampled on rap songs these days. A little nuts, but cool. Cool. I prefer it. First time I heard Old Town Road, I had actually a very favorable impression. I was very impressed. I thought it was cool. It was different, but very catchy. I'm telling you, the formula always is different but familiar for our hit songs. The ones that really transcend offer something different but are catchy. So he had the whole country vibe, but then the beat itself also is catchy but different and weird. Like it's a staple of Nine Inch Nail songs. They're all pretty weird, even the hits, but they're all, you know, at least the hits are, are very catchy. Um, like Trent Reznor has this very particular ear for taking harsher sounds making them palatable to a mainstream audience that's like one of the i mean he's very talented across the board but like one of the signature talents that is a bit more elusive in the music production world um is being able to take harsh sounds and make them digestible to millions of people um and that holds true to this sample Sample is from the song 34 Ghosts off the album Ghosts from Nine Inch Nails. Came out in 2008. It was a very good album, kind of weird. Had kind of kind of dark country feel to it. Um, it's a very actually catchy chord progression. I believe it's in C diminished. And it uses diminished scale which only allows flats, no sharps, if you want to get a little nerdy with the music theory. And that is a staple in blues and bluegrass music and older, older versions of country. And that's what gives it its country feel that made Lil Nas X kind of feel the track as more of a country type of thing. Um, Also, there's a banjo sound, so that helps. But... uh, not to get too into the weeds, but in terms of the actual music feeling kind of country or bluegrassy or old style folky, um, that's why it has to do with diminished chords. So learn something new every day. Um, but not the point. The point is, is I was listening to this inter- interview with this kid, Young Keo, who produced it, and it made me think a lot about gut feelings because he was telling the interviewer that he you know he listened to this track and he like automatically knew like that sample something you know it's something special it's something different it immediately kind of like sucked him in and really caught his ear he knew he had to do something with that sample so he sampled it flipped it turned it into kind of like a trap beat thing he said that he titled it on his he put it up on his beat store he didn't know whether to put it up on his beat store or not That was the big kind of debate with his producer friends. All his producer friends did not like it. They were like, this is not it, bro. Not happening on this one. The clunker. And he almost didn't put it up because of that feedback. But he was kind of like, well, you know, worst case scenario, I put it up and no one buys it. Um... So, yeah, no harm, no foul. By the way, if you don't know, if you're a bedroom music producer trying to get your name out, 
the hustle these days is, you know, hustle hard on Instagram, Twitter, all that. Get your name out there, build a presence. And then you have a beat store, almost like an e-commerce model where, you know, people can go straight from your social profiles, YouTube, whatever. And uh, you have your beats. You can buy them for lease or you can buy them for purchase. Um, With sample clearance like this, it becomes a bit of an issue. Some people are more rogue with it. Some aren't. But um, basically, when you're a bedroom producer, it's like you got nothing to lose if you have to clear samples on the studio. So, yeah, they put them up for purchase um, or lease, and that's kind of the model for how producers do this. But like an e-commerce store, you only have so much space on your storefront pages. So, you you know, you got to be sort of selective with what beats you put up there. So this young Keo kid, he was like, all right, whatever. I'm just going to throw it up because I, I like it, you know. It might not be the most popular one, but you know, selfishly he liked the beat, despite what his peers said, and he put it up there. And what he did, the other thing that producers do to market their beats is it's called typing, or it's like type beats. Basically, what you do is instead of naming the track some emotional thing you feel from inside, um, because that doesn't sell, you say this beat is a future type beat this beat is a migos type beat or so those are the artists but or you could do the producer this is a murder beats type beat or this is a pharrell type beat or you know whatever it is um this is an arab music type beat uh saying type beat it just basically before someone clicks on it they have this uh audio picture in their head of what the beat's going to feel like and they might have a verse if they're the artist and they know kind of which big name producers type beats work for what they're trying to do so they're looking for producers that have beats that are similar right that's kind of how the model works for shopping for beats if you're the artist and how to promote your beats as the producer so he promoted it i think as like a future type beat or something and he admitted he was like it doesn't really sound like that at all it sounds like nothing, but I just wanted to give it some sort of label so someone clicks on it, essentially. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to get into the whole model of how producers sell beats just just for context. But the point is, is he went against the grain, found this weird-ass sample, you know, off this, one of the more obscure Nine Inch Nails albums, and rolled with it. It's without question catchy at this point. It's been validated as a very catchy beat. But if you listen to the Trent Reznor song, or the Nine, the Nine Inch Nails song, it's catchy there. It's weird. It's cryptic. It's dark. Um, it's not... You don't really think trap song when you hear it. You don't think top-selling song of the past three years when you hear it. But it's definitely catchy. The tempo is right. The dun, 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 dun. It's without question a catchy chord progression. And I think in a previous episode of this show, I even talked about how it's similar to an old Linkin Park song, Somewhere I Belong. I want to heal, I want to feel, you know that song. Um, the, it's a different key. It's not really the same if you're, you know, if, you're, if you don't play guitar or something or play piano. It might be hard at first to hear the similarities, but... The chord progression, meaning the way the chords work together, it's there's a definite similarity there. And it's I'm just saying that because that Linkin Park song was a big hit song. Not only was it a hit song, it was the lead single off their second album, which means the indi- like the label was behind it 
and gave it the most promotion. Um, so that's just showing that chord progression wise, it has the same feel as a song that was heavily promoted by record labels, you know, 15 years ago. Um, anyway, but the point is, is I think it's always good to go with your gut and that's a very cliche thing to say and it's very hard to do sometimes in practice and the reason why is like this idea of being different and going with your gut on things and not letting outside influence kind of shape you or mold you is a very attractive trait to have and it's very romanticized in any subculture Regardless, everyone wants to be different. You know, like the hashtag, I'm different, based on the 2 Chain song, I think. I'm different. I'm different. Like, everyone does that on Twitter. Like, football players, high school football players, they're all just, like, post their highlight tapes, and it's like, hashtag, I'm different. But it's not really. They're all kind of the same. People in general, for the most part, are all kind of the same as far as how they act, how they make decisions. People who are different usually aren't going to use a hashtag to state they're different. They're not really going to declare that they're different. But to me, what different means is not being sucked into the collective groupthink that you see in almost every domain of culture, whether it's people blah, blah, blahing about politics, um, you know, people listening to the same kind of music, uh, people being, you know, team iPhone versus team Android. It's all the same tribalism. And when you subscribe to a tribe, there's this level of collective groupthink that kind of um, gets indoctrinated into you. And to me, being different is somehow having the self-awareness to avoid all of that. And when you do that, that's when you know everyone's like, don't give a fuck about what people say. Don't think about what other people, you know are telling you, you know, don't give a shit about what anyone says. Screw the haters. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, it's really hard to actually do that in practice and truly not care. You can do the exercise of not caring, but subconsciously it's still going to ring in the back of your head a little. But to truly not care, it's it's something that's tough, particularly now with all the apps out there, all social media. It gets harder and harder. It's very attractive to, you know, on, on podcasts like this or much more famous ones to say you don't care. But I think everyone kind of cares a little bit. I think everyone's slightly full of shit when they talk about these kinds of things. I mean, I care a little bit. I haven't been able to shake it. Um, but I do think it's important and not quite as hard to act on one thing that you created and go against the grain there, meaning I don't know if this young Keo dude, you know, is everything I just described, but I think he was so attached to this one particular beat that he made himself, you know, he pinpointed as a really good sample and constructed that, you know, in that isolated moment, it's easier, per se, to go against the grain, and that's what he did. And um, what's crazy is when you do that and it's up on the story, you never know what happens. I doubt he thought, forget having a top hit out of that beat. Like, forget that. I doubt he even thought it would be sold for a song that was 
the Lil Nas X song. Meaning, I don't, I doubt he even thought it would be sold to somebody who had the vision to go hard with the country concept. Because you could take that beat, you know, and just do your regular rap over it, and that's it. And it's very easy to do that. It's an easy beat to rap over. But what's interesting, and the reason why that beat took off, is, you know, he had the vision of creating a trap beat out of something that obscure, something more rooted in bluegrass, had a banjo sample. And then you had Lil Nas X, who I've done an entire podcast about, um, you know, that kid, that kid is, is smart. That kid has some vision and some creativity to him. He was like a Twitter, um, like guru as far as Twitter growth before he even had that hit. Like he knows how to make people react and he knows how to get attention. And I think the kid is a true artist in a way where he like saw that and had the vision to do country rap in a non-cheesy way. Like, before that song, country rap existed, but it was basically, like, new metal, where it was some, usually some, like, country artist trying to rap, which is usually cringy as hell. Some, like, country dude trying to rap is generally super cringy. Um, Kid Rock, in his early days, might be an exception to that. I think a lot of people might find him cringy, but I don't know. He had some. He had a little swagger to his game. But these country dudes that are country artists trying to rap—that's been happening past ten years or so. It's been awful. And then on the flip side, you had real rappers that live in like groups like Nappy Roots back in the day. Like they're very country, but they're doing rap. But they're so country in real life that the country kind of permeates through. But what you never had was something in the middle, which was like a rapper really leaning into the country, but isn't some cheesy country artist. You know, that was kind of a new space. And then doing it over that um, that Nine Inch Nails beat that had this kind of like cryptic feel to it, but also catchy, you know, that just created the perfect storm. But point is, is you never know when you, you sell a beat, like who's going to buy it. And the reason why the song was so big and such a cultural phenomenon was a combination of the producer having the vision, not giving a shit about what his peers said, putting it up anyway, and then, you know, having things work out where you had the perfect artist buy it who had their own vision for the track in their own lane, and then two visions come together, and it is what it is. And it's also crazy that... You know, Young Keo is a, uh, you know, he's in, he's from the Netherlands, so this is kind of like a European-American kind of hybrid in terms of vision. Um, I just found that interesting. That has really nothing to do with what my main point is, but it's interesting that such a American song um, has Netherland roots. But uh, anyway, that's just my point is... <clears throat> What I was talking about before in regards to like blocking out the collective groupthink through prescribing to all these little subcultures and all these little tribes within the subcultures because the groupthink is going to happen. It's going to happen. Politicians know what happens. That's why they run their campaigns um, to get elected or how they run their campaigns to get elected, I should say. You know, groupthink's real. We come from tribes. It's in our DNA. I know I'm getting very bro sciencey right now, but. I mean, it's true. I mean, we, we we definitely shape our 
individual worldviews off of the influence of others. And uh, I think it's important to just be mindful when you do it and uh, always try to look at the other side too and try to be objective as possible. It's easy to say be objective in everything you do, but it's, you know, it's realistically, pragmatically a hard thing to do. So the whole point of this was just to show when exercising that ability, even in just a small kernel of your life, the rewards that can potentially be on the other side. Um, and personally, like this is why I try to block out politics almost altogether. I don't watch any American politics shows anymore. I only get my news from BBC. And because I'm learning Spanish, I'm not even getting my news from the real BBC. I'm getting it from BBC Mundo, which is their Spanish website. Um, and that's, you know, not to, I'm not trying to like humble brag or anything here. I'm just trying to say like how far I try to go to block out all the, all the noise based on group thinking. And, you know, it's in every sector. It's not just politics. It's just a very easy one to, to talk about, but it's everything, sports, music, social causes, it across the board. Um, and I think. When you have a hunch on something, no one knows your hunch as good as you. So, for God's sakes, don't let them act for you. Particularly in fields like music and movies, where like a lot of the people who want to be the loudest as far as feedback don't really know what's up most of the time you know that's the age it's a cliche at this point you know like uh screenwriters who have these scripts and get all these notes from the studio you know the old notes from the studio it's the same kind of thing and that's different because there's more cooks in the kitchen and uh the studio ultimately has control because movies are so expensive but in music it's a little easier because now songs take off virally and it costs much less to produce something. So that's kind of like the baked-in advantage of the music industry. But the whole point of this is just to give a case study of why gut feelings are important and why gut feelings should never be crushed or not acted on or swayed from outside influence. Um, I thought this was a good one. Uh, I saw the video recently. I think it was on Splice.com maybe. Splice is a service it's like a SaaS modeled service for music producers where you can basically lease all these different drum kits and sounds and then they profile certain producers and release custom sound packs yada 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 so that's where i got it from if you want to check it out but uh yeah that was just kind of the thought of the day um that is it for me hope you guys have a good one uh if you have any questions as always hit us up at not rocket science show at gmail.com or on insta or twitter at nrs underscore show also if you want to leave a review on the podcast store it would always be much appreciated thank you guys so much hope you have a good one and until next time peace